right. Good to see everyone here today. Um, if you are new here, welcome. Uh, my name is Jay. I'm the lead pastor here at FLM. If you are new, I know it's not easy to visit a new church surrounded by people you've never met before. Uh, but if you are new here, welcome. It is an honor and a privilege to have you with us to worship together with you. All right, uh, just a few announcements before we jump into the Bible reading, just to reiterate what we shared earlier. Uh, just one, um, the oh, sorry, two announcements. Uh, one is the discipleship training. Um, we will be commencing it on the 28th. Three spots left, so if you are interested uh, or if you have a lot of difficult questions that you've been grappling with that you're struggling to find the answers for, come along, sign up. It'll be, it'll be awesome. Um, yeah, so discipleship training, three spots left, 28th of October. It'll run for about eight Saturdays, uh, 9.30 a.m. Uh, and just one more announcement. Um, the Korean ministry, the Mother Church, has been kind enough to uh, offer rice cakes. Um, so please take one on your way out. If you look at the table to my right, uh, you'll see two boxes there. Um, so please help yourselves. Um, don't take too much. Uh, we want to make sure everyone get some, uh, but I don't know too much about my own culture, but from my understanding, it's Korean Thanksgiving, and for the Chinese, it's a, it's a moon festival of some sorts that we celebrate, um, but yeah, rice cakes, um, and I'll be grabbing some on my way out as well. Um, all right, today's Bible reading comes from the Gospel of Mark. We're continuing our Mark series. We are in chapter 10, and we're going to be reading from verses 1 to 12, Mark chapter 10. Verses 1 to 12. And the word of God reads, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. And from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries, marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, for another week, we're going to be looking at a very heavy passage uh, with a topic that's conveyed. It's not really a positive topic. Uh, it's very difficult to speak of divorce in a positive light. Uh, but Lord, we pray that as we unpackage the words of Jesus in this section of Mark's gospel, we pray to be able to look at Jesus' teaching through the lenses of what we know about the gospel. And Lord, we pray 
A lot of our congregate members aren't married, uh, but Lord, we pray nonetheless that this would be your word, your living word that speaks to each and every one of us, whether we're single, dating, engaged, or married, that we would come away having something tangible to have food for our souls through this passage. May you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So um, I've mentioned a few times that from chapter 9 onwards, we're in the second part of Mark's gospel, kind of like part two of Mark's gospel. And again, I think I've mentioned a few times that in part two of Mark's gospel, the direction or the trajectory of Jesus's ministry moves away from Galilee in the north and goes towards the south in Judea and Jerusalem. And I've asked the media team to put up a map. I wish I'd done this much earlier because uh, it would have given a lot more clarity. Um, but the opening verse of today's passage tells us that I brought a laser pointer, but I realized the position of this pulpit is too far back. <laughs> so we're not going to use the laser pointer. But if you have a look at that map, you'll see two pools of water. One at the bottom, which is the Dead Sea. And you'll see a tiny pool of water at the top, which is the Sea of Galilee. And that region around the Sea of Galilee is where Jesus has done most of his ministry up until about chapter 8. The left side is Galilee. The right side is that Gentile region. And from that top pool of water to the bottom pool of water, if you, you probably can't see from where you are, but there is like a blue line that connects the two, and that's the Jordan River. Now, something important to note about today's passage, Jesus moves from the north, and he starts heading down to Judea, which is directly south. Now, if you've done maths at school, you'll know that the shortest distance between any two points is what? Straight line. Uh, so logically, you just expect Jesus from the left side of that pool of water at the top. If he wants to head to the left side of the pool of water at the bottom, logically, straight line downwards, right? Uh, however, traditionally, um, Jews did not take that route, whether going up or going down. And the reason is because underneath Galilee, there is a region called Samaria. Uh, and these people were considered traitors to the Jews. The Jews hated them. That's why if you read the account of the Samaritan woman, there's, you can tell there's a bit of racial prejudice. Uh, the Jews did not like the Samaritans. And so whenever Jews looked at Samaritans, they considered them unclean, traitors, idolaters, and just all around not good people. Um, and so they even considered the region of Samaria to be unclean. So when Jews traveled, uh, they never went in a straight line from south to north or north to south. They would actually, as an act of passive aggression, they'd come down from Galilee, they'd go right, cross the Jordan River, and then on the far right, they would rather tread through Gentile territory, travel down, and once they got down to around the, the, the Dead Sea, then they'd cross back over to the Jordan again. Uh, what a passive, aggressive way to show that you don't like a particular people group, that you would deliberately take an extra long way. And that's because of the long history that they had. There was a really strong degree of animosity between the Israelites and the Samaritans. But nonetheless, 
they would, oh, oh, they would travel, cross over, come down, and that region before they'd cross back over, uh, it's a region called Perea. And keep that region in mind, Perea, because the significance of that will be explained later on. But Jesus wasn't a racist. However, we can assume that that's the, that's the route that he took uh, because of what plays out in today's passage. Now, I mentioned last week that the, the intention of Jesus' ministry in the second part of Mark's gospel was for it to become much more private, much more tailored to his disciples. But nonetheless, it was inevitable that people would come to look for him. Uh, and that's what happens in today's passage. People come seeking for him, probably a large crowd, because large crowds generally followed Jesus wherever he went. Um, and so Jesus sits down and he begins teaching the crowds. Matthew's gospel says that he healed them as well. Um, but Mark doesn't really make mention of that. Uh, why? Don't know. Uh, but in the midst of all this, a group of people come looking for Jesus. Jesus is beginning a, a teaching seminar, and the Pharisees, this group of people, come looking for Jesus. And if you don't know who the Pharisees were, they were a particular sect, a division or a denomination within Judaism. Um, these people were generally, if you read through the Gospels, considered the enemies of Jesus. Um, they were a group. You know, we, we can label them as enemies and terrible people, uh, but... You've got to give credit where credit is due. Because these guys were serious about keeping the law of Moses. Like when we talk about the law of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Uh, to such an extent that they had Genesis to Deuteronomy memorized word for word. They could begin reciting Genesis. And I don't know how long it takes to recite. I think it takes about 12 hours to recite verbally. Oh, no, no, more than 12 hours. About 18 hours, sorry. Um, they could recite from Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy without skipping a word. When they would write out the law of Moses from Genesis to Deuteronomy, they had these giant scrolls. If they made a spelling mistake, they'd have to throw that scroll out and start again. That's how seriously they took the law of, uh, law of Moses and the word of God. However, in their obsession to oppose Jesus, according to Mark 3, we saw a few months ago that they began conspiring against Jesus and actually plotting his murder. They wanted to rub him out. And so throughout the ministry of Jesus, you find that everywhere that Jesus turns, there is always Jewish opposition. And that Jewish opposition is usually made up of the Pharisees. They were bent on destroying the reputation of Jesus and really having that aha gotcha moment where they catch Jesus out, where they try to get him to make a mistake and use that to kind of prove, kind of like the, the current affairs reporters, to prove that this guy is a fraud. And that's exactly what they tried to do in verse 2. Verse 2 reads, And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They come to Jesus and they ask him a question about the law. Now you might be thinking, what's wrong with that? They have a question about the word of God? If you have a question about God's word, who better to ask than the God of the word? But Matthew and Mark, they have parallel accounts of this encounter. They both make it clear that these Pharisees did not come with honest intentions. Verse 2 in Mark's gospel 
And in Matthew 19.3, which is the parallel account, both say that the Pharisees came to Jesus to do what? To test him. To catch him out in a way that would bring about his downfall. But then if you study this passage, that question comes up. How does asking a question about divorce bring about anyone's downfall? And this is where that region Perea I mentioned earlier becomes important. Because if we look a few chapters back, you'll remember that we saw a particular individual, King Herod, or Herod Antipas. And if you guys remember him, he was that pedophile pervert king that had the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist, beheaded. And if you remember what we read uh, a few months ago, you'll, you'll recall that the reason that Herod had John the Baptist beheaded was because John the Baptist, whenever he saw Herod in public, he would make the issue of Herod's divorce prominent. He would call out Herod's sin of divorce and tell him to repent. Because whenever he, like, what happened with Herod was that he divorced his wife so that he could marry the wife of his half-brother. That was the circumstances. And so whenever John the Baptist would see Herod, he would scream. He would, like, he didn't matter who he was with. He would run up to Herod, the king, point at him and call him out to repent. And that got him killed. That got his head cut off. And so one of the reasons the Pharisees come to Jesus to test him about this question of divorce is because he's John the Baptist's cousin. They want Jesus to give the same answer about divorce that John the Baptist did. Because where is Jesus right now? He's in that region, Perea. And King Herod was the king of two regions, Galilee up in the north and Perea, where Jesus was in today's passage. For the Pharisees, they want to use this opportunity to trap Jesus into an answer that will hopefully set the wheels in motion to have him executed just like his cousin John the Baptist. Now, there's another reason why they want to ask Jesus this question. Uh, and the other reason is because, in a sense, they do want an answer. Because uh, this particular question on divorce has been a point of contention for many Jewish scholars like back in these days. And even today, it's something that scholars debate. But the, the, the con point of contention for the Jews back then stemmed from a passage in Deuteronomy 24.1. And Deuteronomy 24.1 reads, this is, the word, this is the law of Moses. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then he finds no favor in his eyes because she, he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. That's what Deuteronomy 24.1 says. And the debate, the point of contention stemmed from that question, what is the indecency that Moses is talking about? Because Moses says, you know, he can divorce if he's found some indecency in her. What is that indecency? Um, and a lot of conservative Jewish scholars back in the day of Jesus, they saw the importance of marriage. They understood it. They understood that marriage was meant to be preserved at all costs. And so they saw indecency 
as a reference to adultery. That's only in the event of adultery does God approve of divorce. Uh, there were actually more liberal Jewish scholars who wanted to open up, open it up to other reasons to like permit divorce, and um, they defined indecency as anything that displeased the husband. Uh, what a terrible way to interpret it, because it sounds ridiculous. Like some of the reasons that they came up with, uh, they said, you know, if you're not happy with the way your wife speaks to you, that's an act of indecency. You can divorce your wife. Uh, if you're not happy with her cooking, if she put too much salt or seasoning in your food, weren't happy with it, divorce. This was the liberal view of the day. It was heavily debated. And surprisingly, it was the liberal view that actually won the day. That's why Herod was allowed to divorce his wife and marry his half-brother's wife. It was a hotly debated topic back then. And it's actually, surprisingly, a hotly debated topic today. Does God allow divorce? And so what circumstances should divorce be permissible? Uh, I'll give my opinion at the end uh, based on what I believe today's passage says. But let's have a look at Jesus' response. To the question of divorce, the first thing that Jesus does is he points them back to God's word. Verse 3, when they ask him, what circumstances is divorce permitted? Jesus says, what did Moses command you? What does Genesis to Deuteronomy say? Because whenever the Old Testament or the New Testament talks about the law of Moses, Moses or talks about what Moses commanded, it's always a reference to the Mosaic law, which is Genesis to Deuteronomy. It's what the Jews called the Torah or the Pentateuch, penta meaning five, the first five books of the Old Testament. Jesus asks them, what does the Torah say? Genesis to Deuteronomy. Now, verses four to nine, what the Pharisees say is quite interesting because we get a snapshot of what the Pharisees think about divorce and then afterwards we get a snapshot of what Jesus thinks. Uh, in regards to what the Pharisees believe, the Torah says in verse four, the Pharisees say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. That's what the Pharisees say. They say, look to Deuteronomy 24. Here's what Moses allowed. That's their response to Jesus. But Jesus makes his own observation about that view and gives his own response about divorce. Jesus says when they reference Deuteronomy 24, he says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. The Pharisees give an answer from Deuteronomy 24, which is the fifth book of the Old Testament. But Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis, to the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. What's so different about these two responses? What's different is that the, the Pharisees are trying to focus on the exception. Here's what man can get away with. Here's the loophole 
on what we can allow for divorce. Here's how far we can take something before it becomes a sin. But remember what we looked at in last week's passage about the hands, the feet, and the eyes being cut off or gouged out. For God's people, it cannot be so much about the sin, but the underlying healthy, unhealthy practices that give birth to sin. And so what Jesus is doing by going all the way back to Genesis is he's trying to explain that instead of trying to find the exception to the rule, we should be looking to the heart of God. which is what every follower of God should be doing, and seeing where is God's heart? What is God's will in regards to this? Because by quoting Genesis, Adam and Eve, the first marriage, that two become one flesh, what Jesus is saying is that divorce, whatever excuse you try to find, whatever loophole you try to find to justify it, divorce is a departure from the divine ideal. Divorce is a departure from God's plan. And the two reasons why Jesus gives his response to the Pharisees from Genesis is because one, he wants to remind them of God's original plan for the intimacy of marriage. Marriage is meant to be intimate. Two, becoming one. That is a mystery. But it's a mystery because that's what God uses to convey the intended intimacy. That a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and that the two become one flesh. One plus one equals one. Doesn't make sense. But that's what Jesus is using to convey how intimate a husband and a wife are meant to be. Two becoming one. There is no other relationship on earth that you can use to describe with this analogy. You know, there's a few parents in this ministry and I see the love that the parents have for their children. I see all our parents, their children are the apple of their eye. And yet the Bible does not describe the relationship between the children and the parents as two becoming one. It's only in the context of a husband and a wife that two become one. And so the reason Jesus goes back to Genesis in his answer, firstly, is to remind them. You're talking about divorce. God's original plan was for marriage to be the most intimate of unions. The second reason Jesus quotes Genesis is to remind them that God's original plan was for marriage to be permanent. When God created Adam and Eve and instituted the, 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 the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, his intention was for it to be permanent. It wasn't, I'll be married as long as this person makes me happy. I'll be married as long as this person can cook my favorite meal and season it perfectly. I'll be married as long as I find this person, person attractive and they fulfill all my desires and makes me content with life. That wasn't the intention. I think that's what culture tries to make the intention of marriage today. I think culture has been very clever. I think Satan's been very clever at trying to move the goalposts when it comes to marriage. But I think for all people, 
deep down within us, there is a sense in which God speaks to us, tells us that the biblical standard of marriage, that love is meant to be selfless, about sacrifice. I think we know that that's true deep down. Because we yearn for that kind of love, don't we? We might not demonstrate it to other people, but we yearn to be able to receive and be loved with that kind of a love, don't we? This is why we have God's ideal from Genesis, God's intention on marriage embedded in every wedding vow. I got to officiate my first ever wedding a few weeks ago. And when you read the, the typical stock standard wedding vow, it's I, so-and-so, take you, so-and-so, to be my wedded wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forth for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness or in health, to love and to cherish till when? Until this person stops making me happy? No. Till death do us part. That's the wedding vow. That's not a human thing. That's a God thing. That's from Genesis. God's design was for two to become one. And that the only separation for a marriage that God had intended was death. Now, the flip side is because, you know, the flip side of this is that, you know, there's God's ideal. But we are descendants of Adam. We are sinful by nature. And because of the hardness of man's heart, because of our sinfulness and our fleshly desires, Jesus says, you know what? Because of man's sinfulness, God in his grace and his mercy, he has allowed a scenario for divorce. In Matthew 19, in the parallel account, he gives that one scenario. He explains what that is. Because that's what the Pharisees were wanting, weren't they? They were wanting that answer. What's the exception to the rule? How far can we take it before it becomes sin? In one sense, they were trying to trap Jesus to have him killed like his cousin John the Baptist. But on the other hand, they wanted to get an answer so that they could settle this hotly debated topic on how to interpret Deuteronomy 24.1. And so in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Moses says in Deuteronomy that it's indecency. Indecency is the exception. And the question for the Pharisees is how do you define indecency? Jesus says he defines it as sexual immorality. But then that begs the question, how do you define sexual immorality? Uh, some people will say that Jesus is specifically talking about adultery. Adultery is what Jesus is talking about when he says sexual immorality. I don't think he's talking about adultery specifically. And the reason I don't think it's just adultery is because according to the law of Moses, they already had a remedy, remedy for adultery. It was death. Someone commits adultery, you beat him to death with rocks. And so what is sexual immorality? Uh, it helps to look at what the Greek word is. And the Greek word is porneia. It's where you get the word pornography from. Um, and porneia encompasses a broad spectrum 
of sexual sins, not just adultery. And it's, this, it's in this instance that Jesus says, you know what? Divorce isn't what God desires. It isn't. It wasn't a part of his original plan from Genesis. However, if you so fracture the relationship through sexual immorality, not just adultery, but through any sexual sin, if you fracture it to the point where it's just absolutely beyond repair, that you try everything you can to heal and restore the relationship, but because of sexual immorality, it's just so broken that it can't be healed. We'll allow that as an exception. Outside of these boundaries, Jesus says any type of divorce and remarriage in God's eyes is not permitted. Now that's heavy, especially in the culture that we live in. But I want to make it clear that the flavor of Jesus' response, the intent of Jesus' response isn't to break it down and give a nitty-gritty interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 like the Pharisees were hoping for. But the flavor of Jesus' response isn't to give an interpretation of the law, but to elevate the sanctity of marriage. That whilst God made an exception for marriage, that was never intended to be the norm. He's wanting to emphasize the holiness of the covenant of marriage. And the passage concludes with the disciples asking Jesus for clarity on this when they're alone. And Jesus doubles down on his response. He says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And remember, there were two schools, two modes of thought back then. Um, there was one mode of thought that said only adultery, no other divorce reason is permitted. And there was the more liberal view that if your wife makes you unhappy for whatever reason, divorce. Um, now, there is clarity that Jesus gives us in today's passage. There are other instances of divorce, teachings on divorce in the New Testament, which we won't have time to go through. If you are interested, you'll find it in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 7, 7. Have a read of it when you get a chance this week. Um, particularly, he talks about what to do in the event that you marry an unbeliever and that person leaves you. Um, but yeah, like I said, have a read of it when you get a chance. But for today's passage, that's how it ends. And so for the big question for today's passage, what can we take away from Mark 10, 1 to 12? Especially if you're not married. Um, I struggled with this part of my sermon. But I came to the conclusion that the most helpful way we can hear from God in today's passage is to meditate upon these 12 verses in the light and through the lenses of the gospel. Because whether or not we do our best in our endeavor to become the spouse that God calls us to be, part of the reason, according to today's passage, that God made the con concession for divorce, even though he didn't approve of it, part of the reason he made the concession was because we are descendants of Adam. We are of the flesh. We are broken in our sin. And anyone that's been married for any length of time will tell you, fights happen. Arguments happen. 
And if you look around the world, you'll see divorces happen. I've seen couples that I thought this is the perfect couple. I've never seen a couple like this. I had a friend at work who, who this was, he wasn't a Christian. But every time I looked at him, I thought this is what a Christian man should look like. A Christian husband. He, was, he lived for his family. Sacrificed for his family. Destroyed his body for his family. And yet, even in the most unexpected circumstances, we find people divorcing. Fights happen. Divorces happen in this world. And it is always destructive and painful. And I say this as a son of parents that got divorced when I was younger. Uh, it is Painful. I, I can say, having witnessed it firsthand, watching my parents go through that process, I can say it is so painful and so traumatic to watch. And I'm sure for my parents, I remember when I was younger, I didn't understand. I was so angry at my parents. But now that I look back, I can only imagine how painful it must have been for them to reach the point in their relationship where they concluded our relationship is so fractured that it cannot be healed. And for those that have gone, I, I, don't, I don't know if anyone's been divorced, but for those that have been divorced, gone through divorce, come close to divorce, or witnessed a loved one go through divorce, you know the answer isn't just as simple as don't get divorced. And if you ever see someone going through that painful process, don't ever say to them, don't get divorced. That's what God God wants the marriage to be preserved. God obviously doesn't want that person and his spouse to get, the, get divorced. But divorce isn't that black and white. Because there is a fracture and a brokenness underpinning that relationship. Underpinning one, if not all parties involved, and both need healing and restoration. And it's not just in the marriage relationship, but any relationship. And this is where it's helpful to look at it through the lenses of the gospel. We find in the New Testament this metaphor of Christ being represented as the groom and the bride being the church. And I don't think it's a coincidence. And the circumstances that play out in today's discourse that Jesus has with the, uh, with the Pharisees, we need to look at it in the context of this marital relationship between Christ and the church. Because we are the spouse. We are the bride of Christ. And we have demonstrated a habitual committing of that sin, porneia, a sexual unfaithfulness. We demonstrate it every time we fall into idolatry or live a life of faithlessness, every time we place something or someone else on the throne of our life. And if the outcome were to be determined by the goalpost set by the world, it would be grounds for an eternal divorce. But God makes it clear in today's passage and all the way back from Genesis that divorce was never his intention. It was never his answer. 
It was never even meant to be an answer. God desires for man to become one with his wife. And so the answer from God in response to our pornea, our marital unfaithfulness to the groom, Christ, God's response is to make his son, the bridegroom, even more one with his bride. Not divorce, but restoration. And restoration achieved by the shedding of his blood. That in response to our relationship, being fractured by our sinfulness, our faithlessness, our sexual faithlessness towards the bridegroom, which is Christ. He greets us with his blood, with love, grace, and mercy. And he covers it upon us abundantly. Praise God for that. I don't usually say hallelujah much in my sermons, but hallelujah for the blood of Jesus. That he didn't resort to that exception, that loophole that the Pharisees were trying to find. How far can we take divorce before it becomes sin? But he holds to his original standard that what God has joined together, let no man separate on this side of eternity, human relationships will never be perfect. Whether it be with the husband, or with the wife, maybe both. One or both will always have problems. Usually both. Let's be fair. Parents and children. There's always problems. Amongst family and friends, we encounter problems. But we have in Christ a glimpse into everything that God desired for relationships, especially marital relationships. Because restoration of fractured relationships always begins with the way Jesus demonstrated, through grace. It has to. Otherwise, bitterness and anger will win the day. And so if you're married... Some of you are married. I don't know if your relationship with your spouse is rocky or if you're dating someone. I don't know if your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend is rocky or if you're single. A lot of you guys are single. I don't know if your relationship with your family or your friends is rocky. But what we find through the power of today's word is that God's will, God's desire was never for brokenness to have its day, but restoration. And if it means killing your pride, because that's what Christ did. He emptied himself. If it means killing your pride, swallowing your pride, and having to be the one that first extends grace to begin the process of healing, so be it. And if you're struggling, know that God doesn't call you to do this alone. He calls you to pray for strength. And the Holy Spirit, if he's going to answer any prayer, he will answer always that prayer for your desire to be obedient 
to the word of God. Any prayer that God, this is the prayer that God's going to answer. So try it. And have a read over this passage again. Meditate upon it and reflect upon your relationships and pray for healing and strength to be able to fulfill God's desire for human relationships that began all the way in Genesis 1. Not to look to the exception, but to look to God's original desire and plan. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you that your word doesn't romanticize or oversimplify relationships, doesn't try to make it black and white and give a simple answer, but we thank you that your word is an honest word that understands the human heart, that understands the human mind and the emotions that we go through, that sometimes for the greatest emotional problems, for relationships that have been fractured, it's not just a simple band-aid answer that we slap on to make it better, but that sometimes it is a long, drawn-out, painful process where it can need a dying to self. But Lord, we, we thank you for what your word promises that you don't call us to do this alone, but you have given us the helper, the Holy Spirit, to strengthen us in our time of need so that our relationships in this world will not be defined by brokenness, but by joy and restoration that emulates what Christ demonstrates and demonstrated to us through the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.